So it, it just feels really weird that the FBI is taking the lead on investigating white supremacy when it's been clear that they've been aware of white supremacy um, or the infiltration of white supremacists into police departments since the 60s, um, where they fed inf information um, to local police departments, despite knowing that they were infiltrated by the Klan, um, information about civil rights activists. Um, so it's like they, they've known about this for decades, for arguably, I would assume, really the entirety of their existence. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, it seems like they're only doing something partially because the public um, is concerned about it and there's a lot of push. Um, and it just, yeah, it's just kind of odd and like sick that they're doing this without actually doing any formal examination of themselves and kind of selling themselves as like this champion uh, of progress or the champion of, you know, uh, fighting for racial equality now. And it's also kind of terrifying that much of the media hasn't really talked about this either. And a lot of it has been framed as like, oh my God, finally, finally our heroes are here. The white knights are, have come to save us yeah. uh, from white supremacy. Finally, they're doing something about white supremacy uh, while missing, you know, the entirety of the FBI's history, including the history of the last, like, you know, two years. Everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode, I speak with political strategist and organizer Akin Ola. Uh, he joins me to discuss several recent articles that he has published at The Guardian, several op-eds. Uh, the one that caught my attention initially was the article, The FBI Can't Investigate White Extremism Until It First Investigates Itself. And then along with that, we also discussed two other op-eds he published there. Uh, Facebook is banning left-wing users like me and it's going largely unnoticed, and the U.S. Capitol riot risks supercharging a new age of political repression. Uh, so in this interview, we really dive into a few major subjects, as the titles of those articles kind of allude to. Uh, we talk about the FBI, and we talk about leftist organizing after the Capitol siege that happened on January 6th of this year, uh, leading up to the eventual inauguration of Joe Biden, the last week or two of Trump's presidency. And we fit that within the context of how the FBI, as a very political organization, uh, the FBI is not neutral by any means. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has a long history of using extremely repressive and violent tactics to go after radicals, uh, organizers, you know, across the spectrum, but mostly, almost completely, always on the left. So whether we're talking about figures that are now lauded as heroes like MLK or Malcolm X or the Black Panthers, like Fred Hampton, for instance, you know, these figures that, you know, whether they're considered radical or not, were targeted by the FBI. And there was a lot of really repressive tactics that were employed to do that, including, uh, as Akeem will explain in this interview, backing far-right paramilitary groups in the United States, 
infiltrating the organizations themselves in order to create discord and confusion, assassination attempts along with actually following through with assassinations, as we saw with Fred Hampton, there was some information released very recently, which showed just how involved the FBI was in the assassination of Fred Hampton. This whole interview is just a way for for me to ask Akeen to just share that history. Like the the fact is, we need to have this this understanding of what the FBI is. And the reason why we're going over this history is because, as I mentioned, with what happened on January sixth and all the fallout from basically all these MAGA supporters storming the Capitol building and what was essentially, in my opinion, a coup attempt. And to think that the FBI, which is now targeting these people that participated in this riot, uh, thinking that they're just going to target these people, throw them in prison, and that justice will be served, is very ahistorical. It's not really looking at the history of the FBI in its own complicity in its own white supremacy problem, basically, having white supremacy uh, demonstrated within its organization, within its ranks, and the fact that they tend to almost always target people who are seeking you know, racial justice, addressing systemic racism, issues around class, you know, anti-imperialism, all of these organizers and these political activists that have been working, you know, whether we're talking about the civil rights era or talking about the present, the FBI has attacked these individuals very, very consistently over the decades. And they very rarely go after actual uh, far-right extremists. So it really says something when we've reached a point in this country where the FBI, which has largely ignored these groups, is now kind of paying attention to them a little bit. But as Akeen addresses in this interview and as he addresses in his articles and his writing, it's really hard to trust the FBI with going after white supremacists, uh, white extremists, when they have their own problem of a history of white supremacy within their own ranks. Like, you can't expect a white supremacist organization to effectively battle white supremacy in the United States. It's just, you know, just not possible. So for those of us that are just unfamiliar with how bad it really has been in regards to the FBI, I really think you should check out his articles that he's published at The Guardian and just listen to him talk about this in this interview. We also just discuss what we can expect with the fallout of what happened on January 6th with the targeting of far-right individuals by the FBI and just how big tech companies, social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and so on are reacting to this. And, you know, we have seen even just leading up to what happened on January 6th, that, yeah, they did take down like QAnon groups within like Facebook and so on. Some far right groups have been taken down and individuals who are espousing really hateful white supremacist views, they most definitely have gone after those accounts. But they've also gone after leftist accounts, other leftists that are attempting to organize around, you know, issues that are are good, in my opinion. So we're seeing the same tactics that are being employed against these white extremists being employed against leftists. We need to understand how the tactics and the powers that are being granted to the FBI and also the power that just lies within the hands of these big tech companies, that they're going to use that to shut down anyone they view as being a threat to the status quo, including those that are fighting for a more equitable and uh, equal society, those that are fighting for justice, for abolition, and so on. And this shouldn't be surprising to us, considering the history of what the FBI and other repressive organizations have done. 
this is all just to say that we are entering into a time where we need to be extremely cautious about our support, whether that is through being just neutral, quotations around neutral, or we're actively like saying, yes, please go after these right-wing extremists, FBI, thank you, and not really understanding how these same resources were always will be then redirected towards attacking leftists, towards people seeking liberation and abolition in this time that we are in. And so I would just ask people to please go check out Akeen's work. Uh, I will be linking to his op-eds at The Guardian, as I mentioned there. Uh, I will also be linking to his podcast, This Is The Revolution. You can find his podcast, and I mean, it's, it's on every major platform that you can listen to podcasts. But one place you can go is thisistherevolution.buzzsprout.com. That's a good base to see all the work that he has done with that. And of course, you can also support Akeem and his podcast through his coffee page. That is ko-fi.com slash thisistherevolution. And if you would like to learn more about my podcast specifically, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. I recently updated my about page, so it has like a pretty comprehensive overview of all the work that I've done over the past several years. So check that out if you want to learn more about me specifically. If you'd like to support my work monetarily, there are a few means to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal or Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. Consider supporting me that way. Or you can support me on a regular monthly or yearly basis through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. Uh, you'll gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. And you'll also gain access to some exclusive content there as well, including something that I started more recently, which is a Discord server. We're having some really good discussions. Uh, we've talked about books a lot lately. People are just recommending different books that they've read or that they want to read. And it's really just a lively discussion and it's kind of picking up a little bit. So it's pretty exciting to see that. And it's my first time really working with Discord. So it's a pretty good platform for that. Uh, what else? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I just really want to thank my supporters for those that are on Patreon or those who have donated through PayPal or Venmo. Thank you very much. The monetary support is very helpful. And just all of the kind words and all the beautiful messages that I receive from people about how this podcast is impacting them. I see that. I deeply resonate with everything that everyone has shared. I feel the love. So thank you all so much for your support, however you choose to go about that. All right, everybody. Uh, that's all I got. Thank you so much for listening. And here is my interview with Akin Ola. Akin, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate the fact that I could get a hold of you. You're kind of difficult to find, to be honest. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I do my typical researching uh, when I find a good article, um, or or you know anything that really just catches my interest that I want to follow. And uh, you know your recent pieces that you published at the Guardian were certainly something I wanted to follow up on. So I had to get hold of I had to I, you know contact the Guardian directly to to find you. I think the only thing I could find online of you was like a LinkedIn account. I think <laughs> pretty, pretty low yeah, key. I mean, I haven't been very public as a person in a couple of years um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, some of it is I've been uh, targeted uh, by police in the past and mm. it's also seeing that. Yeah. 
a lot of my work is more focused on training other organizers and people and preparing them for, you know, the task of creating social change. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, fake names here in the back. <laughs> right. So how does, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about, um, cause I mean, I, I, I mentioned, you know, there's like three articles in particular that you've written over the past, just several weeks and you've published at the guardian and that's what caught my attention. The first one was about uh, the FBI, and the title of that was "The FBI Can't Investigate White Supremacism, uh, Extremism, Excuse Me, White Extremism Until It Is Until It First Investigates Itself." And I want to get into that, yeah. but there was a more recent one. I mean, you've talked about uh, this one about Facebook, about Facebook banning left wing users uh, like yourself, and it's not really being addressed or acknowledged um, yeah. in the media. At least it seems like it's not that big of a concern. Um, I mean, what has been your experience as far as, as left leftist organizers online and their ability to organize right now? And the, especially in the wake of this, like capital siege, these fascists that try to storm the Capitol or did storm the Capitol building last month. Um, yeah. What has been your experience at least with that? Um, I mean, it's definitely been a longer experience and one I, I haven't paid as much attention to as I should have, to be honest, where, over the last couple of years, I've seen friends randomly banned, restricted um, organizations that were taken down from Facebook. Uh, this uh, iteration impacted me personally. So I'm like, I, I should probably pay more attention now, which right. is you know, horrible on my part, but it's also real <laughs> and human. And yeah, yeah so it was um, the day after I published my first Guardian piece, which was about... Um, like the, the age of potential repression coming down from the Biden administration and kind of the conflation of the left and the right mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of, um, or I guess Biden uh, had done recently and in the past. Um, and then the next morning, um, actually it was like afternoon, when I noticed that uh, Facebook had sent me a notification basically saying that I could no longer create Facebook groups, Facebook events, couldn't participate in them. I couldn't like new Facebook pages, couldn't message them. Um, and a bunch of other restrictions that I had to uh, find out by myself. Um, there was a certain point where I couldn't even interact with people outside of my own Facebook, uh, though that was only a couple hours. So it was, um, but so I, what I did was just create a Facebook status and a series of statuses just playing with Facebook's algorithms and seeing what kind of uh, statuses would actually be able to like breach what kind of restriction I was potentially under. Um, and eventually a lot of people started commenting and saying that they were also impacted. Most of them were left-wing organizers. Um, there was one person who was a baker um, who, that <laughs> wasn't involved. I don't know what they were baking, but um, yeah, so it seemed uh, to target us specifically. And we also looked on Twitter to see if there was anyone else talking about it. And there was maybe one Trump supporter that we could find that was restricted. Uh, I imagine it impacted other Trump supporters and my bubble just isn't, doesn't have Trump supporters in it anymore. So it's harder for me to find. Right. Um, yeah. So Facebook, you know, uh, um, didn't let us appeal it. Uh, for me, it um, showed that I had no violations. There's even a little message that popped up saying, you know, thank you for being a, a great member of our community, keeping Facebook a safe place to be. Um, and so when I appealed it, I uh, basically received a message that would say, um, you know, thank you for your feedback. Uh, we'll, we'll make changes one day uh, that, you know, clearly implied that they weren't actually processing the appeal, but were using it to maybe improve their algorithms in the future. Sure. Um, 
So someone from the Philly Inquirer reached out to me about the story. Um, and at that point, it's been like, you know, a week. Hadn't seen anyone else really cover it, um, except for like Gizmodo and some other uh, publications. But the whole framing was Facebook banned um, events from being created out of the country and Facebook was restricting events around the inauguration, like physically around DC, which I think is also, you know, fairly dystopian. And I wish people had, you know, spent more time thinking about that. Um, and for the most part, most publications were endorsing it, being like, this is a thing that should have happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not paying attention to the little blurb at the end of the release uh, that Facebook put out saying that Facebook users within the country were also restricted. Um, given past violations, but I had no violations to speak of. Mm. Um, and then, uh, so I guess at the end, um, my friend from the Inquirer, um, someone who I worked on the school paper with when I was in college, um, you know, reached out to Facebook. They said it was a mistake. It was an accident. Um, and then th that same day, the uh, decision was overturned. Facebook does claim that they were planning on overturning it on that same day, regardless. Um, and then on Wednesday, they reached out to the Inquirer again and said, actually, um, it wasn't a mistake and he was meant to be targeted. Um, so mm. I'm waiting. The story's coming out uh, tomorrow in the Inquirer for people who want more details. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had heard, I mean, just from people through my networks, I guess, that there were left-wing activists that were being, like, there were FBI agents that were showing up to their door, yeah. knocking, asking questions. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody had been detained or anything like that, um, but there was a real, like, it wasn't just an online thing. It was, like, a very real, like, FBI agent showing up to your door, trying to prevent people from doing something, whatever that would be. Um yeah, I mean, what does that indicate to you? Because um, I, I feel like a lot of this attention, it's, and the reason why a lot of people are like so giddy about the idea of the FBI tracking down these people that participated in the Capitol riot um, is, you know, I mean, obviously these are people that are, uh, <laughs> you know, proto-fascist or whatever you want to call them. I mean, like these MAGA uh chuds kind of storming the capital and it's like yeah there's these you feel like there needs to be some retribution there because it was so frightening and and terrible uh to see that happen but like to then ask or to to uh applaud the federal agencies finally doing something about white supremacy white supremacist extremists in this country and not really reflecting on how these agencies have actually turned a blind eye to these groups for a really really long time and um, and that's something you addressed really in your article. The F, you know the FBI can't investigate white extremism until it first investigates itself. So for people that are maybe unfamiliar with the history of the FBI's targeting of left wing activists and people seeking racial justice and civil rights activists and that, I mean, just give us a few maybe highlights of of things we should maybe know about the FBI in regards to that. Yeah, uh, I mean. Basically, the entirety of the FBI's history has been exactly that, where they've prioritized uh, Black organizers specifically, um, Black movement specifically, and just any movement that seeks to create some sort of substantial social change within the United States. Um, I want to say like radical movements, but that's not even true. I mean, they went after the civil rights movement. Um, and a lot of it started, I think the earlier, the earliest I could find was the targeting of Marcus Garvey. Um, and his movement um, that brought a lot of um, black Americans together, black Americans together in like uh, the twenties, 
And, um, you know, Marcus Garvey, in my opinion, wasn't like the most extreme radical in the world. He wasn't necessarily talking about like a full, like overthrow of the capitalist system in an establishment, Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, a fully new nation or anything in the United States. Um, And at the same time that you have Marcus Garvey doing what was like reasonable work for black people in the 20s, you had things like the Tulsa race riots and what had already been a long history of white supremacist violence, starting with the the creation of the KKK after uh, the Civil War with things like the Wilmington coup of 1898 in which white supremacists overthrew the city government of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, and no one was ever punished. The people who committed those crimes became governors, became senators. Um, so you, you have this clear history that are, was already established by the time the Tulsa race riot happened, um, in which white people stormed into Tulsa and went about massacring hundreds of black people. Um, it, it was the threat has been here for quite a long time. And the, the predecessors of the FBI, you know, did not investigate Tulsa. Uh, President Harding, you know, made one comment about Tulsa. Uh, at the time, and that was pretty much it. But at the same time, the FBI was like, "These black folks are rising up. We need to, we need to squash this." They, you know, they're 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 talking ideas and thinking, you know, big things about politics. And you know, and it really comes to head more um, in the '60s and '70s, where we can see it more clearly and explicitly uh, with COINTELPRO, which is a counterintelligence program mm-hmm. um, created by the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. Um, who was um, the director of the FBI for most of its history, um, starting um, even the, being an agent with the predecessor organization and, and personally investigating Marcus Garvey himself. Um, so this program was basically created to squash any form of dissent really in the United States. Um, it did focus a lot on radicals, but it's still, um, it still, uh, it targeted people within the civil rights movement, the most famous case of it being the threatening letter sent to Martin Luther King, um, asking him to commit suicide. Mm. Um, and then there's other um, cases that are becoming more prominent, like the assassination of Fred Hampton. There's a movie coming out about Fred Hampton's life, I think, in a couple of days or like February 14th or something like that. Not like I need to promote them. the FBI. Um, starting with Marcus Garvey uh, creating this idea and Hoover becoming obsessed with this idea of the Black Messiah rising up and a Black organizer and leader in the country that could organize both Black people, other people of color, and working class white people into an alliance that would eventually overthrow uh, the system. So Hoover was absolutely obsessed with this idea and continued to identify different people who fit that criteria from Martin Luther King um, down to Fred Hampton. So Fred Hampton was a 21-year-old organizer from Chicago who helped really build the NAACP in Illinois, which isn't always a big part of his story, um, who was then assassinated, um, you know, in bed um, at 21 by the FBI or, well, by the Chicago Police Department Mm -hmm. in coordination with the FBI. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was also killed. um, um, there was another a young man killed at the same time. I'm forgetting his name, which I feel horrible. Um, I want to say Mark Clark um, was shot there, but he was less prominent. He was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this you know, whole deal where the Chicago Police Department made it seem that it was a shootout, uh, but the Panthers actually kept the house open for um, journalists from all over the world to come and investigate themselves. And they found that not a single shot was fired from within the house. In fact, the only shot that was fired within the house was a shotgun blast from one of the Panthers um, as he was, you know, dying um, and just uh, Mm -hmm. pulled the trigger. 
Um, so it's clear that this was like an attack on people who were armed at the end of the day because they saw something like this coming, uh, but they were not in a position in which they were able to fight back, partially because they were drugged by an FBI informant um, who had uh, been working as a member of the Black Panther Party. Mm. Um, and so this is like, you know, one of the more extreme things that they did, but it, it's not, you know, the only case. They also helped trigger a war between uh, the Black Panther Party in LA and the US organization, which was a black nationalist movement, a lot more like, you know, centrist to right wing in its orientation. Um, and there is um, some claims and some evidence that the people um, who murdered the leaders of the Black Panther Party in LA were actually FBI informants themselves. The US organization claims that they were never members of the US organization. The Black Panthers claim they were members of the US organization. Um, but over time, uh, we've seen some evidence that these people were had been working with the FBI prior. And regardless, at the bare minimum, we know as a fact that the FBI stoked the war between the US organization and the Panthers by sending letters back and forth between both organizations, uh, basically, you know, talking. Uh, smack about each other. Can I curse? Yeah, yeah. Please say whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking yeah, smack. Oh, so, yeah. They they instigated. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a beef between the the organizations, and um, another example that's uh, really not talked about much was the establishment of the secret army organization in San Diego. And mm -hmm. so this was a paramilitary terrorist organization, basically funded by the FBI. It was the successor organization to um, the Minutemen who were a white supremacist organization created like in the early 60s for the purpose of preventing a leftist takeover of the United States. They, they feared like a communist revolution or some sort of like, you know, left-wing president. So they started preparing themselves for guerrilla warfare. Um, against the left and armed themselves. Um, they eventually fell apart in, um, I think, 1968 after the prosecution of one of their leaders. But the FBI basically was like, they were, they were great informants. We might as well bring them back for, you know, the, for, the, for the sequel. Um, so mm -hmm. they helped rebuild the organization um, under themselves, armed them, um, and helped them coordinate bombings of cars, buildings, including a movie theater in San Diego, and the attempted assassinations of a Marxist professor and the leaders of uh, the Chicano organization, the Brown Berets in San Diego. Um, and there was also evidence that they coordinated all the way up with um, up to the White House with the White House aide who was aware of these actions. Um, and you know these these stories go on, and you know the officially COINTELPRO ended after it was uncovered. Um, but you know there's it just it seems kind of like a fantasy to believe that the FBI would just be like, oh, we got caught, we're, we're going to stop doing <laughs> this now. now. We yeah. Got us, <laughs> um, especially uh, with things that happened later. Um, like finding out that FBI agents had participated in the old boys all roundup, which was uh, mainly um, ATF agents who like led this event for 16 years um, in which um, basically white uh, federal agents would come together for like a cookout, um, probably tons of fun for them um, in which they, uh, one of the things that happened there was like the selling of um I think it was like Negro, like it was like Negro hunting cards or like hunting permits. Mm -hmm. um, they sold T-shirts that had the face of Martin Luther King and the crosshairs of a sniper. Um, it's just like, you know, general white supremacist shenanigans. Um, sure. 
And, you know, the FBI did disavow the agents that they, they caught there, but I'm like, okay, your agents were doing this for 16 years and you only disavowed it and bothered to investigate it after they were already caught. It seems like a pattern where the FBI is like, you know, we'll, we'll somewhat admit to something once they're caught and be like, we're, we're never going to do this again. We're never going to allow this to happen while not doing any really substantial investigation of their own ranks. So it's really ironic, um, you know, at this point in history, in which they have created this new black identity extremist label, um, you know, in response to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and have already used it to target black uh, organizers. Um, and the most prominent case, they used uh, Facebook posts as the evidence uh, to target a black organizer. Um, and um, so it, it just feels really weird that the FBI is taking the lead on investigating white supremacy when it's been clear that they've been aware of white supremacy um, or the infiltration of white supremacists into police departments since the 60s, um, where they fed inf information um, to local police departments, despite knowing that they were infiltrated by the Klan, um, information about civil rights activists. Um, so it's like they, they've known about this for decades, for arguably, I would assume, really the entirety of their existence. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, it seems like they're only doing something partially because the public um, is concerned about it and there's a lot of push. Um, and it just, yeah, it's just kind of odd and like sick that they're doing this without actually doing any formal examination of themselves and kind of selling themselves as like this champion uh, of progress or the champion of, you know, uh, fighting for racial equality now. And it's also kind of terrifying that much of the media hasn't really talked about this either. And a lot of it has been framed as like, oh my God, finally, finally our heroes are here. The white knights are, have come to save us yeah. uh, from white supremacy. Finally, they're doing something about white supremacy uh, while missing, you know, the entirety of the FBI's history, including the history of the last, like, you know, two years. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just, something that just came up in my mind and it's been in my mind a lot lately um, is this, parallel when you talk about this for instance the at the end of hoover's tenure i'm quoting from your article towards the end of uh hoover's tenure the fbi went so far as to allegedly create an army far-right paramilitary organization in san diego which you just described there um this is exactly what the cia does in other countries they fund far-right paramilitary organizations and death squads and back dictatorships, um, right? Like, that's 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 from the CIA playbook, and that is being replicated or done exactly in the same way in the United States through the FBI. And it's just worth noting that parallel, like, the same... It seeming, seems like the same type of ta tactics are employed within the United States as there is, uh, say, in Central or South America, for example, and I just wanted to just bring that up because that's, yeah, that's a big thing. But I mean, what do you make yeah. of this? The fact that the FBI now is seemingly going after people that participated in this Capitol riot. I mean, I think that there has to have been a threshold that's been crossed because again, they didn't do anything about the KKK. They didn't do anything about any of this other stuff. In fact, they backed a lot of these types of organizations. You mentioned that paramilitary organization and, and so many other examples, political assassination, all of these other tactics they've employed. And now with like Trump and the kind of thing that he fomented in the United States, culminating on January 6th with tens of thousands of people storming the Capitol building, it's like something, some threshold had been crossed where the actual 
I don't know, something something in, in the minds or in the organizations like, like the FBI, just something had clicked where they were like, we have to now employ our resources to target these people that are maybe a threat to the establishment in some way. I mean, there, but there had to be a lot that had to happen for, for him to get to that yeah. point, right? I mean, seems that way. Yeah, totally. And um, interesting, I want to say fun fact, it's not that fun, <laughs> but um, one of the the people chosen to lead the secret army organization had actually participated um, with the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba and worked with the CIA. So there's even a direct link between the CIA and the FBI mm. uh, when it comes to the establishment of the army. Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess I'm seeing it as like, um, kind of like from two ways where I think one of it is like there was this breach of acceptable behavior uh, from the far right where this was like, you know, really attacking um, like the state itself and actually fundamentally attacking the government uh, by having like uh, far right people and fascists uh, storming the U.S. Capitol. So I think like that's a big part of it. Um where, um, yeah, a lot of these actions in the past were directed towards the left and tar- targeted towards people who weren't really in power. Though I think there are some examples of the FBI, um, you know, threatening presidents with blackmail. And that there's at least two presidents who've, you know, in private mentioned being afraid of the FBI. Mm. Um, and I, I think the other part of it is that there's so much public pressure around it in a way where I think, you know, conservatives and centrists might have in the past been the only people calling for more FBI action. And I, I think having liberals and a good chunk of the country on the same page and calling for this action um, uh, is a little bit of a game changer. Um, yeah, and that in combination with the, the real threat that these fascists posed to uh, elected officials and like members of Congress, which I think is just a whole new um, level yeah. Uh, for uh, the far right, uh, like maybe they threatened you know one or two people in the past, or or like at a time, but like the idea of actually going after the institution itself, which I think, um, I mean, I don't think the FBI is inherently just like filled with racist clan members. There's probably some in there. Um, I sure. think its fundamental existence is about protecting, you know, the state and protecting the United States as it stands. Um, and the reality is that we live in a white supremacist country. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that's been a lot of why the FBI has behaved the way it is. Uh, it has like, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Even I read this, it's this embarrassing article by an FBI agent, um, <laughs> which he was offending Hoover saying that he's not a racist because he never used the N word at any point. Which I'm like, really, is that the marker here? But I'm also like, okay, there is something about like, he just understood fundamentally that black people are a threat mm-hmm. to the white supremacist order that he works for. Um, it's not that he is like woke up every morning. was like, God, I hate black people. Right. Um, and I think that's just as insidious. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what's playing out here that the FBI is like, you know, they came after daddy and like, we can't have that. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah. And I think the public pressure is also real. Um, particularly at a time where I think people in the FBI, uh, uh, especially considering, you know, Biden isn't really uh, doing much of a change of the guard in the FBI, which I think is, you know, interesting. And he's like, well, they're, they're a bunch of centrists who mean well is his whole analysis. Um, <laughs> so we're going to have a lot of people from the Trump, you know, 
uh, I guess the Trump FBI actually staying on. So mm. I think there's also a part of them that wants to differentiate themselves and be like, yes, we're not actually the Trump FBI. We're the real FBI here for justice and love and, you know, everything. Sure. How wonderful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this moves into, I mean, I, I did touch on this with Alex Vitali a few weeks ago, but just what, and we're starting to see this play out now where we're seeing, as we mentioned with social media, I think there's like two things. There's the kind of tech companies that are doing their own thing to put a, you know, clamping down on what they perceive to be politically extreme uh, pr- people or, or profiles or Facebook pages or events or any of these types of things. Um, and that, that goes for the left and I would say the far right with also like QAnon and all this stuff, right? I think they're trying to like put the cat back in the bag and it's too late, <laughs> you know, like they could have probably done mm-hmm. this like a few years ago and it would have been effective, but it doesn't seem like it's working now. Um, but yeah, you, you just, I mean, there's another article you wrote, the US Capitol riot risk supercharging a new age of political repression. Um, and in that you talk about, you know, I mean, this actually was going on during, I would say over the last year or, or more uh, with the uh, uprisings that we saw in the U.S. Uh, with the murder of George Floyd. Um, you would talk about the Republicans having called for increased repression of activists. The chorus has reached, reached a crescendo in the age of Black Lives Matter and climate protests. And he said over the past five years, 116 bills to increase penalties for protests, including Highway shutdowns and occupations have been introduced in state legislators, and 23 of those bills became law in 15 states. Um, yeah, you just talk about uh, a few examples of that, and now you're saying that the Democrats are starting to really move into that direction as well, uh, kind of echoing what we saw, what we what we witnessed and heard after 9-11. Um, and of course, we should understand that Joe Biden... Uh, was one of the chief architects behind um, at least uh, how the bill was structured and how it was written, uh, the Patriot Act that came out of that as well. So I'm curious, like what you anticipate as far as from an organizing perspective, um, what we can expect in the coming, uh, during this administration, I guess, during the Biden administration, as far as uh, leftist activists being able to effectively organize, not just online, but just also like in other other avenues or however organizing is done right now. Um, how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, my, I guess my biggest fear, which I think is realistic um, is uh, that we're going to see a conflation of future protests, uh, left-wing protests with what happened at the Capitol. And the reality is we're probably going to see riots in the future, whether or not like the organized left, is prepared for that or anticipating that. I think we're just at a moment in history in which people are very angry and justifiably so. Um, And as uh, more people are losing their jobs, as the jobs that people are getting become more precarious and lower paying, um, I think, you know, we run, yeah, we're going to be in a position which there's going to be rioting. Um, there's going to be people who are fed up with police violence. I mean, I saw it in my own, like my own neighborhood um, outside of my my house. Um, I mean, Walter Wallace uh, was shot well, like seven blocks away from me. And that night, you know, there was some like organized protest, but immediately people started rioting. It's like after the George Floyd protest, watching someone in your own neighborhood, you know, get murdered. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, um, just knowing that 
there would be no justice here. Um, yeah, it, it made sense that people were angry and especially um, given more context, I mean, so much of this, of this like repression of protests is already happening um, or happened over the summer um, where uh, West Philadelphia in particular, there was like a four block radius. It was entirely tear gassed by the Philadelphia police department. Um, and I like, that's part of my neighborhood. So like mm-hmm. when I came home that day, there was literally tear gas in my room. And I know I wasn't the only one. There was a family that they fled their house with their children because of the tear gas pouring inside their house and they needed to escape. Wow. Um, and I know that's like not the only neighborhood that happened in the United States. And it's, it's the kind of thing that's not getting covered. Um, as much. And, you know, the, the mayor of Philadelphia, Democrat, didn't really apologize for it. He was kind of like, you know, sucks to suck. Um, that's not exactly <laughs> what he said. But basically, that's what it came off as. So it made sense that, you know, only a couple months later, when a Black man, you know, having a mental breakdown was murdered by police officers, it made sense that people rioted in response to that. And I think we're just going to see that across the country as people are dealing with, you know, the loss of their family members to COVID-19 and the inadequate response uh, from the Trump administration and kind of like the, you know, the not that great response from the Biden administration thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, he, he's trying a little bit more, but I know a couple of days ago he was talking about how, you know, there's not much he can do, which is like, no, there's, there's a lot you can do, but there's not much you can do that will, that won't interfere with how capitalism functions and won't interfere with the market. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, there's an ine- inevitability in my opinion of rioting, um, that is going to be seen as left-wing violence. Mm. And I think we're going to see um, the targeting of the leaders of left-wing movements. Like we saw um, of Anthony Smith, for example, from West Philadelphia, who is an organizer um, here, um, who was recently arrested with a, a joint investigation by the FBI, um, I think ATF, DEA, the Philadelphia Police Department, uh, coordinated to a- arrest, you know, one activist. Um, mm. And um, and they're basically, you know, trying to pin the, the riots on an organizer and saying that, you know, you are an organizer, this happened, you know, um, thus you're, like, this happened because of you. And I think we're going to continue to see um, things like that. And what I'm afraid of is that we're going to see the center to, like, center left kind of try to distance itself um, from this and start, you know, saying like, we're different from these people, you know, we're walking in the tradition of Martin Luther King mm. and all that, yeah. um, ignoring all everything that Martin Luther King said about rioting, um, and kind of allow, um, kind of like what we're seeing with Facebook where, you know, the far left has long been targeted on Facebook, like crime think, mm-hmm. uh, the anarchist publication was removed from Facebook and not much of the left said anything about it, let alone like liberals or the center left. Right. Um, yeah. So I think we're going to see that play out where the, the far left will be targeted and everyone else will just kind of be like, well, you know, you shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have been involved with that. And then really ignore the circumstances that created um, the conditions in which people are angry, in which left organizers are out there, you know, supporting and providing, you know, like, you know, health, you know, um, like uh, medical care to rioters and providing, you know, um masks and things like that, or providing, you know, just being there and leading the nonviolent protest part of it, but being associated with riots themselves. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's a real threat. Um, And also, you know, the expansion of the surveillance state. Um, And it doesn't always have to look like um, arrests of leaders or the assassination of leaders. Um, Historically, the FBI has relied on 
you know, um, on intimidation, on threats, um, you know, the even showing up there, like you mentioned, um, uh, there was uh, a number of leftists that were targeted recently by the FBI and visited by the FBI before the inauguration, um, much like Muslims were, um, or Muslim American like leaders, um, and just like people just, you know, existing in the country were targeted uh, and visited by the FBI before the 2016 elections. Um, it, it doesn't have to be like, you know, kicking down your door mm-hmm. um, or just like, you know, threatening to harm you. The FBI is simply visiting you and like, you know, checking up on you and trying to, you know, see what you're up to itself is a threat in this country because we know what that entails. And it means you're already being watched, you're being monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that will silence leaders um, and prevent them from organizing, prevent them from speaking up in the future. Um, and also the, even the way it's, um, you know, I, I think what happened uh, to the chair of, um, I want to say the new African Black Panther Party in New Jersey, um, if you if you watch the video, the FBI showed up at his house and basically implied uh, that they were there because they thought that um, his organization had infiltrated and instigated the fascist riots in D.C. Uh, was the implication or um, they explained it as like, yeah, that we believe that there might be, you know, informants in your organizations maybe that are working with white supremacists. It was just like some like weird fabricated fable that made no sense whatsoever. Um, the, the video is so awkward to watch, was to be honest. This- Sorry, was this influenced just by yeah. Trump and just them be, like uh, obfuscating the whole thing, just being like this was Antifa or like because I, I feel like that may have been an influence. Is that do you think that that's the way? It yeah, was? that's what makes the most sense yeah. that they they either bought into the story or just like we need to like you know uh, uh, cross our T's and dot our eyes on this, which is you know still seems a little absurd to like buy into whatever like far right conspiracy theory exists and engage in the act of intimidating uh, leftist organizers in the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously it's not just the, the people who are visited who are intimidated by that, but anyone who sees that and is like, oh, if I continue to engage in the work that I do, I too might get a visit from the FBI one day. Um, it also then gives the right, the ability to just, you know, concoct whatever theory they want to and know that the FBI is going to somewhat follow up on it. Um, Mm, It's just, yeah, it's, it's either like, you know, the FBI being really incompetent at their work or, you know, utilizing whatever tools that they have, whatever story that they have to do the work that they want to do anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I just find it really kind of frustrating. I have been seeing people who I would say seem like leftists i mean the trump thing right it was so infuriating for so many people they were so upset by his presence and his Mm -hmm. position he was in which i understand that you know any relief that they could have from that they're just like okay great like and then trump you know biden comes in trump leaves and now it's like there isn't this i don't know i think maybe it's just people in the u.s in particular i don't know what it is maybe it's a cultural thing here in the u.s but we tend to have this sort of amnesia or lack of like mm-hmm. sort of a historical perspective we don't really look at like organizations like the fbi for instance and like how now that we're entering into biden's the biden administration that this will be used as a pretext this whole event at the capitol as a pretext to beef up so-called you know uh, anti-terror laws in the united states domestic terror laws 
when it seems like we already have a pretty robust mm. infrastructure and legal uh, parameters set up for that already, especially post 9-11. So, mm. I mean, what can we expect from an, again, from an organizing perspective, but like what, what are you or what are other organizing anticipating as far as uh, repression? You know, you talk about the FBI visiting around the inauguration, but like other things that maybe activists and organizers should be conscientious of moving forward into this, you know, administration with under Biden. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a big part of it is really, you know, the center left or like the more institutionalized left, like labor unions, larger nonprofits, really kind of holding a line and not buying into um, like the kind of like this, like um, the, like throwing under the bus of the far left. Mm -hmm. um, I think that'll be a, an important part of it. And then maintaining the line of like, we need to be targeting far right white supremacist extremists. That's, that is the actual threat here. Mm -hmm. um, for the rest of the left. Um, I mean, it's hard to say where, you know, I don't think we should grow into like a overly paranoid state, which I mean, would be fair. Um, mm. But I, I'm, I mean, my whole, um, I guess my orientation is like being as public as possible to a certain extent um, to ensure that the public is aware of what's going on. Um, the reality is that like there were other people arrested um, alongside with Ant Smith in uh, Philly, uh, but like Ant's work and the, the prominence uh, and like his role in the community and his importance to the community is why we heard about it. You know, if the FBI just randomly picked up um, like two like less prominent um, like black people, we we wouldn't hear about it. We wouldn't necessarily care about it much, much like what happened with uh, Facebook. Like if it wasn't for the fact that, uh, you know, I had recently written for The Guardian that I have, you know, friends uh, that work for like large institutions you know, I, I don't think this story would really be anywhere at all. Um, and it's just like, yeah. um, I, I think there's an importance in being public with a lot of our work and seeking to build mass movements that are openly challenging um, Biden's administration and really focusing on like the, like the big picture and the long haul of like this, Biden's going to give up certain things um, and is going to acquiesce in a way that will also, I think, will create tension between the far left and the, like the center left, um, mm -hmm. where it's like, he's gonna pass some things and people are gonna be like, great, he's doing things. When like, a great example is, um, you know, restricting the use of private prisons um, mm -hmm. on the federal level, which, you know, that's like a drop in the bucket compared to one, the entire prison system and two, to the entirety of the private, prison system that holds undocumented uh, people sure. um, and like maintains the concentration camps. So like, you know, people are justified in being angry and being like, you know, this doesn't go far enough, but then, you know, a lot of people at the same time can be like, well, you know, it's a start. It's something you should be grateful. He's not Trump, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it would be reasonable for people to take more direct action um, at the concentration camps um, in terms of like road blockages and occupations um, in ways that obviously don't, you know, pose a threat to the people that are being um, incarcerated. Um, and I think those kind of actions that might be seen as more aggressive and, you know, and like targeted towards Biden might be um, 
you know, might be shunned by other members of the left who are like, we're getting, why are you coming after our president? Why, you know, especially after like the alternative that we have, why are you making him look bad? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those kind of things can like more so set us up in the long haul for when there are those explosions of like rioting. Um, And to be honest, I think an inevitable, there might be inevitable left wing um, or like um, people um, who, yeah, who have like more leftist views who engage in like what we would consider like terrorist attacks, like bombings mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Or, um, I mean, there was a case of, um, I'm forgetting his name, the man who um, tried to blow up the ice vans um, right. in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember his I name think those either, kind of things. Yeah. It's all, hmm? I said, I can't remember his name either, but yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I think those kind of things are inevitable regardless of what the organized left and people like myself are are trying to do. It's just like, if your country is unable to truly address these fundamental, like really basic, like human issues, like children in concentration camps, people are going to get angry at those contradictions Mm -hmm. um, and eventually do something about it that they see is justified. Um, And so I think actions like that are just, we're probably going to happen. And the fear that I have is that we're going to be thrown, you know, wholesale as a far left into that bucket um, and then uh, alienated and isolated and repressed. So um, I, I feel like the the thing that we should be doing now is focusing on, you know, on top of the organizing and local organizing and base building and mutual aid work that has been going on um, from like this, like newly created far left um, of the last like 10 years. Um, you know, I think we should engage in the mass protests and mass movement work, um, uh, similar to Occupy Wall Street, similar to like the the Black Lives Matter movement that can really pressure the Biden administration in ways that will strategically um, force the public to choose a side and understand um, mm. that he's also, he's probably going to be on the wrong side of history. In fact, he's long been on the wrong side of history. Sure. Um, and that way that we can at least win the public mm. over um, so regardless of what else happens, rioting or anything else, that the public is at least, you know, in step with us and understands the totality of our mission is to bring forth, you know, a, a new country that, you know, is a just country. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, a lot of what we can do. I also think, you know, they're obviously like strategizing work, um, and development and planning that, you know, can't be public partially because of, uh, the FBI's repression. And I think really, I think the entirety of the left, I think most Americans should move towards encrypted platforms to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. like using things like proton mail, using things like signal for texting, mm-hmm. um, I think is something that we should all be doing. Like, you know, like there's no reason, I mean, considering, uh, and I talk about it a, a little bit with things like the, the prison program with the NSA, they, they capture, you know, every text and, you know, the vast majority of phone calls, you know, in the country. So it's like, why would you want, you know, like pictures of like your niece's birthday party to the NSA? Like, you know I mean? Like, why would you want like the private messages, like all those sexts you're sending to like that person you just met and maybe hooked up with? Why are you going in a bar still? That's a question. But regardless, like, why are you, you know, why do you want the (laughs) NSA to have that? You know, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, So it, it doesn't make any sense for the left, any, you know, section of the left to allow their information to be readily given up to the NSA and the FBI. I think we need to heighten that level of security, mm-hmm. but at the same time, create public facing campaigns um, to actually uh, ensure that the public knows and continues to understand like what this new left that is growing in this country is actually about. 
Yeah. Uh, there seems to be, a, I think for me, what I, what I'm seeing, or at least what I, what I think about, and I'm not an organizer really. So I, I have no like, uh, direct experience with this, but just doing this work, I've been thinking about like, I think it has to be a little bit of a, just like it's always been right. Like using the technologies that are available to communicate and doing that safely and conscientiously, cautiously, uh, knowing, you know, the nature of the beast, so to speak. Um, but also maybe just doing what has worked for decades or centuries of people trying to organize, you know, popular movements, mass movements of people, you know, people. I mean, there's probably things that I, I thought this was actually kind of funny is like, you know, if leftists or, or people on the far right are deplatformed, you know, then there's this whole like, well, what do we do now? And I spoke to an, an activist and a writer again several weeks ago, and he's like, well, what did people do before the internet? I mean, of course they had, they had like, you know, like there's, there's systems already that people can use to fund their organizations, fund their activism, um, get information out. Like there's things that we could still do that are effective. It's just, it's just maybe we can't organize events on Facebook anymore or use our Twitter to put out the signal anymore. You know, it's like, there yeah there's just we're just gonna have to look back to maybe what activists did and organizers did just even a few decades ago i, w- I would assume and you're like yes yeah definitely <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean the tricky point is that we're still in a pandemic so it's like sure. you know door knocking becomes has become a lot more difficult i've seen a lot of um like socialist tenants unions in particular that are still engaging in door knocking mm. um, and doing that work. Um, and I, I don't have health insurance. So I'm like, that's yeah. not for me right now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely, yeah. I think once the pandemic is over, we're going to, going to see this massive explosion of um, social movements and also um, a kind of like uh, local organizing um, which has been lacking a lot of ways, um, partially because of social media. Um, I mean, I was reading an article, I want to say in the New Republic, uh, that talked about how, you know, the Democratic Party in particular has been able to build, you know, with, with like, um, you know, organizations like Move On, um, like these massive lists and these massive organizations um, that don't really have members that associate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I've, I've been organizing for 12 years. Um, I don't think I've ever met someone who's like, I'm a member of move on, you know, despite move on having millions of members, you sure. know? Um, and so I, th- I think, you know, this can hopefully, you know, be part of a return towards like building, um, deep membership organizations, and building, you know, like that, like, I guess, civil society, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's talked about in, you know, um, like, what, what I, where's that book? Like, why did we stop bowling or whatever, mm. or bowling alone? Mm. Um, talks, you know, talking about like the decline of uh, bowling leagues in the United States and the alienation of, you know, the American individual. Um, so I think that's a real thing. And I think social movements um, can bridge that gap and really create organizations that people are, you know, a part of, and you know, I'm part of um, Philly Socialist um, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, as the name implies. Um, and that, that's a big part of our mission is really building, you know, tenants unions, transit rider unions, um, any kind of organization that really connects people um, 
you know, um, where they're at and makes them feel like they're part of something. But on the other side of that, I don't think we can neglect mass social movements or, you know, the ability for the internet to connect people across the country rapidly and to build up, especially in like, you know, um, you know, like mass movement or revolutionary moments. Um, though, yeah, there is the whole, yeah, the complication of how do we, you know, how do we organize on Facebook knowing um, the ability that it has the ability to take all of that away overnight. And now Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook is talking about uh, the depoliticization mm. of Facebook um, where they already stopped recommending fa political Facebook groups to people. Um, they're not really talking about once again, which is troubling the very, the specifics of what it means to depoliticize Facebook, but it's assumed that they're also going to, um, create algorithms that, you know, knock down uh, political statuses and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a constant, the train is always shifting. And so it's just like constantly yeah. staying on the ball, knowing what what works and what doesn't work and how to, yeah, you know, <laughs> just being just being aware, just constantly being aware and not relying, I, I would assume as an organizer, not relying too heavily on organizing through these social media platforms because like you just pointed out, Facebook is now attempting, has been doing for a while, de trying to depoliticize, whatever that means, depoliticize their platform. So it makes sense that we, you know, organizers, activists would use what works, but also know that it may not last and, you know, plan accordingly. So that just seems to be the trend anyway. But um, yeah, I, I just, again, I, I just really appreciate your perspective and I've really enjoyed what you've published at the guardian and i want to ask like what are you are you working on any more pieces or like what's your kind of what what should i be looking out for you talked about a, a new piece that you mentioned earlier from the inquirer i think you said but um is there anything else you're working on or anything like that in the future um yeah i'm working with waging nonviolence uh dot org um uh, which is a publication that focuses on like the, the mechanics and like how movements actually work. Um, so I'm trying to promote uh, new writers, um, partially to get people not off of Facebook, but I just feel like we spend a lot of time arguing on Facebook as left <laughs> organizers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people just argue against themselves essentially and make up arguments and aren't really talking to each other. So right now I'm really trying to push as many people as possible towards um, like getting published and, um, you know, fully writing out their ideas mm. of like, you know, what we should be doing in this moment, what the future can actually look like for the country, for the world. Um, I'm also really, I kind of, I'm trying to, to um, go for, back and forth between writing um, and podcasting weeks. Um, mm -hmm. I just released an episode of my podcast today, This is the Revolution. So that's where I'm putting most of like my full political thought and theory um, so, um, a big part of my thinking as an organizer is basically in my work, um, I also like run trainings for organizers, um, is basically how can we make understanding social movements and like organizing and building them as, you know, as easy as possible. Um, I do think there's a tendency among the left you know, for new left organizers to be told like, hey, just go read all these books, which mm -hmm. is great. And I think we need to read all that theory um, and dig into um, like things like Marx and Bakunin mm -hmm. um, and like Gromsky. But like at the same time, the reality is we're competing against TikTok and like TikTok is really great. Um, <laughs> and um, it's just, you know, we have to really understand 
what age we're living in. Um, so my podcast is focused on like, you know, taking pop culture items. So the newest episode is on The Lion King, uh, for example, and using the framework of The Lion King to explain how coups work and how revolutionary coups work and holding them as a uh, distinct phenomenon. Um, wow. And talking about the Wilmington coup, for example, um, in, in which white supremacists overthrew the government um, as a coup, and then talking about uh, Thomas Sankara's a revolutionary coup that involved mass participation. If anything, the masses functioning as an audience, at least to the coup itself, as they were rising up at the same time. Um, and kind of understanding that these are two different things that need to be studied differently. Um, and so, yeah, my, my a lot of my work is going into that, where I just also have more freedom to do whatever I want. I produce, write, edit it, and all of that myself. So mm -hmm. it's just like nice having like full autonomy. Uh, though, like writing for The Guardian, having like my first two articles, I don't think there was really an edit um, mm -hmm. on there. Um, and yeah, so I've had a lot of autonomy there too, but it's just nice to be able to fully articulate um, my entire point and also talk about popular culture, which, you know, is like, I mean, is like my bread and butter um, before I was an organizer. That's all I was obsessed with. Um, so it's mm -hmm. nice to like feel whole and complete and hopefully, you know, get people to understand how things work in a way that is easier for them and more enjoyable. Yeah, I, I like the idea of using uh, things that are popularly uh, like enjoyed or, or, or experienced. Uh, mm. Pop culture has that value where we can use that as a framework to express other ideas that are maybe a little more complex or nuanced. Um, using something like The Lion King as a way to express something. Um, I think that's great. I, I like I like your podcast. I was listening to This Is the Revolution uh, leading up to this interview, and I really like how you present these ideas. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that work that you're doing with that. Um, and again, I really just appreciate your writing. It's very clear. You lay it out. You have a you know just it's very like this is exactly what it is. Especially like with that uh, article on the FBI. I learned things that I had no. I I knew the FBI was pretty fucked, like a lot of people do. <laughs> But you're like, holy shit, like the paramilitary thing. I was like, oh, I did not know about that. I knew about Cointelpro, the assassination of uh, Fred Hampton, like, you know, the suppression of even just like how it targeted Martin Luther King Jr., um, et cetera. But like, oh, there's a, oh, they were setting up a, or aiding a, you know, then creating a paramilitary group in San Diego. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, it was just, it was a mind fuck. So I appreciate you explaining that as well as you did and um in this interview and then also in that article and just yeah you're on the ball i just gotta say Thank you. I appreciate it yeah yeah i mean a lot of my writing comes i, I tried to write for cracked.com when i was like 20 and they rejected an article i was like i did so much research on this and so much work. <laughs> um so ever since then i've been trying to like I guess basically capture some of the spirit of, you know, that website, which is not really what it used to be anymore. Mm. Unfortunately, um, in the kind of like, I, I can't be as funny in the articles I write for the guardian. I do try to throw in jokes. Like I threw in a joke about fuck the police. Sure. Um, in the last one. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate my writing, which is probably, um, whatever. I don't <laughs> care. I'm proud of myself. I put a yeah. lot of work in that. Yeah. You, and, um, it's well done. Of course you should feel proud of yourself. I think and my family likes it. That's what I'm like, oh. okay, I'm doing good. And they're not lying. Cause my family, like everyone also lied to me, you know, but my family <laughs> would always give like, you know, harsh criticisms. Sure. And if they're liking it, I'm like, all right, cool. I'm doing something good. 
So yeah, you got to find those people that aren't your, you know, the yes men or whatever, or yes people. Like mm-hmm. you got to find the people that are just gonna, even if they don't agree, like the politically, like maybe you just don't agree on certain things, but their ability to like criticize you effectively so you that you can like oh okay now i'm actually onto something if i'm getting these people to actually enjoy my writing or or whatever i'm producing so that's good to have those people around that's for sure mm-hmm. yeah worrying. yeah <laughs> um yeah well akeen thank you very much for your time um i know you're i, I would recommend i usually it's the part where i'm like go check out their social media whatever but you seem like you're pretty low-key in that regard so I would just ask people to check out your articles on The Guardian. I'll be linking to those in the description and your podcast, This is the Revolution. Um, yeah, thank Also, um, I use at This is Rev Show, I think. Oh, my God. Let me double check, check that real quick. Uh, partially after the whole Facebook shutdown of my personal Facebook, which I, I do use, but it's kind of like more, um, it's like I, I already have you know, a large network of friends and um, people I've organized with over the last like decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rely on them to kind of like promote whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But since Facebook tried to, you know, topple my work, um, I do use at this is Rev show on Twitter now, okay. um, where I post um, a lot more memes. I do have like a Black History uh, Month series of memes I've been working on for a couple of years. I'm going to share. Okay. Stuff and other thoughts. Um, but yeah, keeping in mind, I'm I, yeah, comedy writing is my first and foremost. Um, so I think people will be surprised sometimes by the things that I say. Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's good to keep in mind. Yeah. No, I'll be uh, I'll be linking to that Twitter, your Twitter handle there. And yeah, Akeen, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.